Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of the fallen angels. It's the story of the people of Israel. God takes and he bestows blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And then at some point, we take it all for granted or we think it's because of who we are or something and we turn our backs on the Lord. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Ezekiel chapters 12 through 19. Now here's Pastor Brian. What happens when a person really is genuinely convicted by the Holy Spirit is that they, they load themselves. They, they acknowledge fully their sin. They take full responsibility for it. They cry out to God, have mercy on me. Well, these people have done none of that. And under all of the judgment that's already come, their hearts are still completely hardened. So, verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, if a country sins against me by unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it and cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. So, What the Lord is saying here, jump down to verse 19. He says, uh, if I send a plague on the land, if I pour out my wrath as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could neither save son nor daughter. They would only save save themselves. For this, verse 21, is what the sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments? So God is just saying that the people, again, it's a lost cause. The people have become so entrenched in their sin that their their judgment is set. And even if men as righteous as Noah, Daniel, and Job were to plead with me, it would be to no avail. So there's no reversing. At this point, there's no reversing of the judgment that's going to come. And of course, this is something that's happened over and over again uh, throughout history. God is, shows a pattern historically of of being long-suffering, of enduring through sin and rebellion and wickedness and all of those kinds of things, giving people opportunities. Of course, the greatest example we can find in Scripture is Pharaoh. How many times does God, how many opportunities does God give Pharaoh to repent? Ten, Ten opportunities to turn. But finally, his doom is sealed. Not because God wouldn't have had mercy on him, but because Pharaoh never would have turned. And so that's where Jerusalem is at this point. And even men as righteous as Noah, Daniel, and Job could not 
turn away the judgment that's going to come. That's a point that he's making. But I think it's interesting the three people that he selects. Noah. We know Noah from the ark. And Noah was a righteous man. He, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was righteous in his generation. That's what we're told. Uh, we're told Job was a man uh, who God himself said about Job, uh, there's no one like Job. I have no one like Job. There's no one as righteous as Job. Now, Daniel is an, an interesting one. Well, let me tell you what some scholars think about Daniel. Some scholars think this isn't the prophet Daniel. They think that this is this other, in the ancient Ugaritic text, there's a reference to, it's almost like a mythological person who was a righteous person in his generation. And his name is, you would pronounce it like, instead of Daniel, it would be more like Danel. And so because the, the um, spelling is a little bit off in this particular passage, some scholars, like I said, think that, well, this is a reference to that person. This, this ancient figure who was known as a wise and righteous person in the ancient world. Why do they think that? I don't know. Sometimes scholars just, they just want to come up with something different or something that nobody's heard or, I, you know, I, I don't know why people think that. Um, but I do not think that that's accurate. And the only reason I bring it up is because you might hear it at some point. Somebody might actually say, oh, well, that's not Daniel. The prophet's being referred to there. Because after all, I mean, you know, we're talking about Noah. We're talking about Job. And then how, how are we talking about Daniel? Because Daniel's a contemporary of Ezekiel. But remember, Daniel went to Babylon 20 years before this or so, close to 20 years before. Daniel has a reputation in the Babylonian Empire. By this time, he is a well-known figure in Babylon, and he's serving uh, in the court of the king, and he's been elevated by the king by this time. And so it is indeed, I believe, Daniel, who is the person who's being referred to here, and that other figure that some scholars talk about. There's no evidence anywhere that the Israelites, in, in none of the, the writings of the Israelite culture, are there any references to this person. So this is just a, a thing that the scholars have latched onto, but to no good reason, in my opinion. Now, he goes on and he talks about the judgment. Remember, he said, a four dreadful judgment, sword and famine and wild beast and plague to kill its men and their animals, yet there will be some survivors. So this is what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. He's gonna send his four dreadful judgments. And, but then he says this, yet there will be some survivors, some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it and they will come to you. So they're going to survive the destruction of Jerusalem, some of them, and they're going to be brought to Babylon. And listen to what it says. And when you see their conduct and their actions, 
You will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought on Jerusalem. Every disaster I have brought on it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their action, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the sovereign Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying when these escape the judgment and come to Babylon, you're going to see the wickedness in them and you're going to understand why I judged the city the way I did. So that's how radically perverted and corrupted and wicked the Israelite culture had become. The culture of Judea, it had become just like the Canaanites that God originally drove from the land. And why did he drive the Canaanites out of the land? He drove them out because of their evil, because of their wickedness. So now Israel has become just like them. And the people that escape, they're they're so perverse and wicked and sinful that even the captives are going to realize, oh my gosh, this is really, really bad. Now, chapter 15 is uh, kind of a parable about the Jerusalem has become like a useless vine. The Lord gives them the example of a, how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch from any of the other trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? No, they don't because uh, wood from a vine is, has no strength in it. And so, and, and therefore it's useless. That's the point. So what he's saying is Jerusalem has become useless because of their sinfulness and the very purpose for which God established them. Now there's, there's, nothing, that, there's nothing that can be done. They're, they've made themselves worthless just like wood made from a vine would be. Chapter 16 is a long chapter, and chapter 16 deals with the adulterous wife of the Lord. Jerusalem is seen as a wife who has committed adultery and has actually become a prostitute. Now, the language in chapter 16 is X-rated, some of it. And therefore, I'm going to let you read that on your own at home. And even some of the translations, like uh, the King James, for example, I think in this area, the New King James and others, they will, in a sense, they will kind of mask what's being said because of the the vulgarness of it. But what some of the newer translations did is they went and they just, they just translated the Hebrew as honestly as you could without you know, glossing over it at all because of their um, insatiable appetite for idols and all the things that go on with the idols. So there's a couple of descriptions of, of what she does as a prostitute that are, I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> like I said, I'm not, I'm not going to read it publicly. 
But, you know, it kind of shows us that, I mean, sometimes in our efforts to, I don't know, sort of protect ourselves from things or something, you know, there are different times in history where, you know, a lot of times people talk about a Victorian culture or like a puritanical culture, you know, a place where you just, you know, you couldn't say certain things or you couldn't, nobody should hear those types of things in public. Uh, you know, God is not bound by those cultural restrictions. And here he just is very, very pointed with his condemnation and the descriptions of the, the sinful things that they were engaged in. So that's, that's chapter 16, but we're gonna look at a couple of things in chapter 16. So the word of the Lord, verse one, came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. So this, this is the word to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and the birth and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Now, this is a little bit uncertain as to why the reference to your father being an Amorite and your mother being a a Hittite. And the Amorites and the Hittites, these were part of that Canaanite civilization that were driven out of the land. Now, it could be that God's speaking to the prophet and he's, he's speaking of them in an allegorical sense that just as they were evil and wicked and perverse. So that's how Jerusalem has become. And so there, Jerusalem is more like the child of the Amorite and the Hittite than the child of God. And that could be what, the, what it actually means. It's interesting though that Jerusalem was a pagan city and it was the city of the Jebusites. And if you go back into Genesis chapter 10, where you have the table of nations, as you go through the table of nations, you come to the order is the Hittites, or the Amorites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and the Hittites. So the Jebusites are right there in the middle of the Amorites and the Hittites. And so it could be that God is referring to the the natural history of Jerusalem, because this whole chapter is basically God saying to Jerusalem, I took you and I made you into this glorious, like I made you this beautiful, gorgeous princess is is basically what he's saying. And I decked you out with every imaginable type of jewelry and clothed you and bathed you. I did all of these things for you. In other words, I made you what you were because before this is what you were. But I did all of this for you and this is what you did to me in return. That's what he is talking about all the way through. And so notice he says, the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped with cloth. These are all things that they would do for a newborn baby. Um, No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born, you were despised. 
So that's your background. That's who you were by yourself. But then, verse six, I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. And so, verse eight, later I passed by. When I looked, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you. I gave my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. And then verse nine, I bathed you with water. I washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress, put sandals of fine leather. I dressed you, I adorned you. I put bracelets on you. I put rings on you, all of these things. And look at verse 14. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because... The splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. So, wow, that's what, that's the indictment. You know, there's, there's like an echo here in a sense of, we looked at this early on and we'll come back to it later in chapter 28, but it's kind of like an echo of what the Lord speaks about Satan. I did, you know, I, you were perfect in beauty. You were full of wisdom. You were the anointed cherub that covered, and I put you there. And you were perfect in all your ways until iniquity was found in you. And kind of this is like the story of the world, isn't it? It's the story of humanity. It's the story of the fallen angels. It's the story of the people of Israel, God takes and he bestows blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And then at some point, we take it all for granted or we think it's because of who we are or something and we turn our backs on the Lord. And that, that has been repeated so many times over. In history, it's, you know, too many to recount. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like just the history of the world. You know, I was thinking, I was reading, um, you know, both Saul and David. You, you have the same thing with Saul and David. Saul is taken by God. He's humble. God takes him, elevates him, makes him the king. Saul becomes lifted up with pride. He becomes an egomaniac. He wrecks everything. And the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, you know, when you were small in your own eyes, everything was good. But what happens? You know, in the end, Saul is rejected by God because of that. But then even David, even the great King David, what does David do? You know, after God does all of these things for him and then he becomes prideful and he kind of feels entitled and he thinks that, you know, he's the king and he deserves a little more than the average person. So he sees a woman and she's beautiful and... The crazy thing is he inquires about who she is. And you know what they told him? She's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Right then, David should have said, oh, never mind. Uh, Ooh, sorry, you know, need to stay in the house while she's bathing there. What does David say? Bring her to me. And then when the judgment comes from the prophet Nathan, Nathan says the same thing. And the Lord speaks through Nathan when you, 
I made you king over Israel. I took you. I took you from following the sheep. I did all of this for you. And if it wasn't enough, God said, I would have done more. But this is what you did. Boy, we, we have to be careful never to forget that we are what we are by the grace of God, by the goodness of God. I mean, how many people has God blessed in their lives, you know, blessed them financially, blessed them with, you know, positions, power, and all of these kinds of things, blessed them, and then they forgot the Lord. That's happened many, many, many times over. You know, this weekend, we're going to look at the remainder of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And remember there in 1 Corinthians 1, there's that place where Paul, he's talking to the Corinthians who are all about the intellect and all of this kind of stuff at this point. And he says, now notice among you, there are not many that are wise, not many noble, not many, you know, who are prestigious or any of that. Why? Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And when we were talking, I, w- I was talking about how, you know, that, that passage has kind of, it's kind of been the description of what God has done with Calvary Chapel over the years now. Taken a, you know, bunch of young men who didn't have a noble background, didn't come from, you know, highly educated places or any of that stuff and and you know took them and blessed them and gave them many blessings and big churches and all kinds of great things and sometimes what the problem is though is you forget that and the point is God has chosen the foolish things when God takes the foolish thing and elevates somebody and blesses them and you know, makes them wise in a sense. The, the thing is, we can never forget that. That no, this is because of God. This isn't because of me. I didn't do this for myself. And it's when you forget that, that's when that's when you're tumbling down into the pit. So that's essentially what chapter 16 is dealing with. And so from verse 15 on, as God says, you trusted in your beauty, then he goes on and he just describes the prostitution. In um, verse 20, he said, your prostitution was not enough. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. And so they not only worshiped the idols, but they engaged in child sacrifice things of this nature. And then as you go down through to verse 29, he mentions the Egyptians, he mentions the Philistines, he mentions the Assyrians, and then finally the Babylonians, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. So these are all of the lovers, so to speak, that they had. They engaged in the idolatries of all of these different nations. And then if we jump over to um, verse 44, we come back. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter, you are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. And you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Then your mother was a Hittite, your father was an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria. Now, Samaria was the northern kingdom that has already been taken in 722, already taken into captivity. So they're gone because of their idolatry. 
November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a timely resource titled One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. Has a skeptic in your life ever stumped you with questions regarding God, social ethics, or supposed contradictions in the Bible? Well, with this book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions by Charlie Campbell, you can be equipped to address the questions of skeptics on those exact topics and many others. If you want to be equipped to always be ready to give a defense of the faith, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ezekiel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.